I should like to draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2 as Avery comes and reads it for us now. Would you stand together with me as we read God's Word? First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12, and verses 21 through 25. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to you who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. God, you may be seated. We're looking these weeks in the spring at the church. And last week, we talked about the disappointment of the church, and the question that we asked together is, if your disappointment in the church, is it really not just a jilted preference? Hmm? And your real disappointment is actually with Jesus, who's confronting you with his love, who's confronting you with the gospel, who's actually calling you to become the church. And sometimes that comes off to us as modern Americans as a great disappointment. This week, we're going to turn the page and we're going to look at the communion of the church. And the way I want to do it is I want to build on what we talked about last week by showing you the interconnected relationship of the church. The interconnected relationship of the church. And then I want to show you the dynamic relationship of the church in the world, out there. And then lastly, I want to show you the power to maintain that dynamic relationship. So, the interconnected relationship of the church, the dynamic, the tension that we feel within the church, in the world, and then the power to not settle that tension, but actually to maintain that tension. 
That's what we're going to see out of 1 Peter chapter 2. So, lower your eyes to the text, if you will. Verse 5, first, the interconnected relationship of the church. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. The church is called the temple of God. It, um, it is called God's, temple. It's called God's temple. Only one time in Scripture, only one time in 1 Corinthians, do you see when it calls us to be the temple of God, is it referring to you, singular? Every other time and here that it talks about the church being the temple of God, it is talking about you, plural. You all are the temple of God. Only once in 1 Corinthians 6. Every other time, it is assuming that you all together, this is important because it is God's Shekinah glory. It is his dwelling glory that is here in the church with his people. When God's people dwell together, when we come together to worship, it is here together when God's glory manifests itself in a very particular way. We are the people of God. And the metaphor that Paul uses here is of living stones. It says we are being built together. That's present tense. Being built. That's a present progressive. That means that, you know what a, a brick wall looks like? There are, there's a stone, and that stone supports all the other stones that are above it. Such that in that brick wall, if you were to remove that stone, or you were to shake that stone, or that stone were to shake or to rattle, everything above it rattles and shakes, doesn't it? And if that stone is not there, then everything above it falls. And in the same way, that stone is dependent upon other stones, so that when those stones shake and rattle, that stone shakes. And when there's a stone that's pulled, everything above it falls. You see the image? So also you, the stone, are dependent upon other people who are here in this room. And other people in this very room, in this church, are dependent upon you. So that when they shake, you shake. And when they're not there, you fall. And in the same way, people are dependent upon you so that when you shake, they shake. And when you're not there, they fall. Do you see the image? Listen, you see this all the time in the church. People will uh, come to church. Maybe they'll go to class. Maybe they'll get into a small group. But they, they, they don't have a kind of interconnected dynamic and relationship in the church. They don't see that if they're not there, people fall. They don't see that whenever they shake, other people are shaking. They don't see that when other people shake, they shake. And when they're not there, they fall. This is the dynamic interdependence of the people of God together. We are living stones. A poll recently, that I recently read, said, what do you need to grow in your relationship with Jesus? And being a part of the church didn't even crack the top ten. They get that from somewhere, but they don't get that from the Bible. P. 
people see the church as ancillary. It's just, it's, 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 um, it's something that, that you don't really need. It's just, it's a nice thing to have, especially if your preferences line up together. But that's not what living stones do. Listen, do you know people in this church? Are you interconnected in such a way that if you're not here, other people fall? They shake. And if they're not there, you shake and you fall. We are coming up on the summer, and we all have a thousand reasons why we don't need to come to gather to worship. We become self-defensive about our schedule. We don't have time. But I just want you to hear what Peter says to the church. You are interconnected. And when you shake, they shake. And when you're not there, things begin to fall. Do you know people in your church to that extent? We are interconnected. Why is this so important to us? Not long ago, I did a funeral, and at that funeral, um, it was of an amazing woman who actually was a professional athlete, a professional football player, yes, in the Women's Professional Football League in Oklahoma City back in the day. And after the funeral, we went over to the house, and they're telling stories about her life and her perspective, and they're, they're crying and they're laughing. It's just this amazing time of camaraderie as they remembered their friend. And what is happening in that moment? C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Four Loves when he writes about the death of one of his friends. You know, C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams and J.R.R. Tolkien, they were the inklings together that always met. And when Charles Williams died, Lewis thought that he now might actually have more of Ronald, who he, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, he called him Ronnie. But listen to what he says. In each of my friends... There is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show me all of his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. And far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Do you see what he's saying? That there are parts of each of you that each of you help the other person see. And if that's true in human relationships, how much more true is it of the church? That there are aspects of God that only I can see, that only you can see when you're here. Some of you have an amazing gift of hospitality. And only I can see the welcome and the invitation and the warm embrace of the living God when you're at church. There are some, some, some of you who have amazing gifts of evangelism. There are some of you who get incredible encouragement when you hear stories about other people sharing their faith. You see the, missie, the mission of God. You see the missio Dei come out in that person. Whenever you talk to them, they help you see a different aspect of God. Do you see how important this is? We are living stones. We are built together. You cannot know God unless you're in community. This is why one commentator has said, why the seraphim cry out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isn't that amazing? 
They're helping each other see aspects of God. The part that you hold back from your community is the part that others will never be able to see because they can only see certain aspects of God through you. Does that make sense? Now, if that's the case, then members of the church and members really of any group, there's a tension because how do you relate to the people on the outside? To the people that aren't part of that community, to the people on the other side, how do you, how do you relate to them? And there's a dynamic tension that Peter mentions here. And I, I want to set it up by, for, for a long time, anthropologists and sociologists have talked about two different kinds of people, two different kinds of groups, rather. It applies to churches as well. There are all sorts of names to it, but let me just give you these names for the sake of being as clear as possible. There are the sectarian groups. There are the people who say that society is them. They're very separatistic. And then there are the mainstream groups, for lack of a better term. They're the people who look out at the world and say, no, the society is us. And they're very inclusivistic. The sectarian group raises the bar of entrance to very, very high standards. Sometimes it's theological standards. Sometimes it's certain academic or educational standards. The mainstream group lets anybody in. If you live in this town, you live in this county, oh, you're in, you're part of it. Like, the, the sectarian groups, they, they, the, the, the mainstream group fundraises by saying, like, we are, we are society. We want, we want to raise money together. The sectarian group usually says, no, no, no. We are not the bad people. We are the good people. And therefore, we want to raise money, for example, in order to not be like them. As different as these two groups are, they have one very important thing in common. They're both really about power. And in some places you live, that's a power of influence. But for most of us, that's a power of control for most of us in Oklahoma. So whether we, we side with a mainstream group, we want to be able to control the larger society in which we operate, we want to be the elites, we want to be able to have contours of the growth of the city, for example, you, st- you definitely see it in the city as Owasso continues to grow, or you're the sectarian group where you tend to say, no, 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 we're going to separate out, we're going we're to not be part of the bad, bad society. The society is them, not us. Now, The sectarian approach avoids, um, avoids this tension, avoids suffering, because they're constantly attacking and withdrawing. They're attacking bad, bad, bad world, and then they withdraw. The mainstream group tends to avoid suffering because they just say, no, everything's fine. And they tend to just ignore it. But both have a way to avoid suffering. But Look what it says in verse 11. It says, dear friends. Now, what is it that we're called to be? Are we called to be a sectarian group or are we called to be a mainstream group? Notice the tension in the text that Peter gives us. Look at verse 11. It says, dear friends, I urge you. Notice the tension. Are we to be sectarian or mainstream? Neither. We're to be something altogether different. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, 
And live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day that he visits us. Look at this balance. The the word for alien, sometimes like in the ESV, I'm preaching from the NIV because I think it's clearer in this text. But in the ESV, it says foreigners and exiles. And Peter here is talking to people who have lived in Cappadocia, Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia for generations And he says, you are aliens, and you are strangers. Why? Because when you become a Christian, you become an alien and a stranger. Are you mainstream? Do you say, no, the society is us, and just assimilate? Or are you sectarian, and you say, no, the society is them, and do you separate? No, no, the church is called to do neither. It's to maintain this dynamic relationship to the world, this tension that every group, anthropologists and sociologists say, will try to end the tension by becoming either mainstream or sectarian, but the church is actually called to hold that tension together. Suetonius in the early church looked at Christians in the Roman Empire and said they are, they are another genius, they're another species of humanity. They were a They were a chosen race. They were separate. They were a counterculture. But they moved toward the poor. But they gave their lives away when the Romans and the Greeks would not. They didn't separate completely and say, no, we're going to be sectarian. They, They gave their lives in hospitality. They let people in their homes who the Romans would never let in their homes. They were amazingly hospitable. And at the same time, they said sex must be within marriage. Listen, if you go to, um, if you read history in the early church, let me just give you some insights on how the Romans perceived the Christians. Here are some of the things that they did. They seemed very foreign and alien. They didn't go to the bloodthirsty entertainment of the Colosseums. They didn't go to the gladiatorial festivals. And therefore, they were considered antisocial. They did not serve in the military to support Caesar's wars of conquest. Many did serve in the military. But when the wars of conquest began, the Christians did not. They were conscientious objectors. They were against abortion and infanticide. Oftentimes, it was very customary in the Roman times. If you had a child, especially a baby girl, that you did not want because you're trying to find a male, you would leave that girl on the roadside. And it was Christians who not only were against that, but they went and picked up those little girls and they brought them into their homes. They baptized women, which was shocking for the Roman Empire because the Christians were viewed as being pro-women's rights when women actually had very little rights in public society. They were against sex outside of marriage. That was strange to have sex outside of marriage. They were against same-sex practice and same-sex marriage. That was weird to the Romans too. They mixed the races and the classes together in ways that were considered scandalous for the Romans. They were absolutely radical for the poor. They gave to the poor way beyond the Greeks and the Romans did. They were radical about their friendships and their fellowship. They were so interconnected as a family that they called each other brother and sister. 
And when the Romans and the Greeks heard that language, they thought the Christians were incestuous because they were giving brother and sister in marriage to one another. They considered only Christ was the way to salvation because they didn't worship all the other Roman gods. Therefore, the Romans looked at them and they called them atheists because they were monotheists. The Romans and Greeks, friends, had never seen a group of people like this before. And the temptation in the church today is for the evangelical church, for the church, to try to ease the tension that we feel to either be separatistic, you will know us by our theology, or to be mainstream, to give your life for the world, to be about caring for the needs of the poor, to be about becoming the, the elites in the society, as it were, of having influence in the larger society. Peter says, listen, the church is to maintain that dynamic tension and resist settling that tension. Some of you lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma for a long, long time. But some of you move around a lot, and some of you travel a lot. You know the place where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, which we just studied, you will be, um, you'll be the light of the world, you'll be a city on a hill. They will see your good deeds, and they will glorify your Father in heaven, right? <clears throat> so the gospel calls us to be, um, you will be a light on the hill. He calls us to be sexually pure, to preserve sex for within the confines of marriage. But he also says, doesn't he, to forgive those who sin against us, not just once, but 70 times 70, which means infinitely. Continue to forgive them. Now, what's funny about that is that if you look all across America, not just in Tulsa, you see certain aspects of what God longs for the church to be to come out in the culture itself. So that you, you go to Austin, you move to Austin, for example, and they will hear God's commands to, you know, we want to reconcile with those that we've marginalized. We want, we want to be hospitable. We want to be able to bring other people in. And they will all say, yes, 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 we want that. But then you say, but sex is to be preserved for within the confines of marriage. And same-sex marriage same-sex practice is sinful. And they go, no, 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 no. No, no, we don't want that. But you can't have it both ways. Or you come to Oklahoma, right? And it's all about traditional family values. I mean, this is our, this is our calling card. Traditional family values. That's why we come to the suburbs. Sex within me. Okay, great. We, we understand that. We got that. Thank you very much. Oh, but you also need to go reconcile with the people that have hurt you. You need to forgive them. And you know what we say? I'm moving further out. I'm getting away from those people. And the heart of suburban life is a struggle with reckoning, because we don't like people, that's why we're here. The early church was so misunderstood, and so also will you be. Because what is somebody who is against abortion, somebody who is against same-sex marriage, somebody who believes Jesus is the only way. The world looks at them and they go, oh my gosh, they are like horribly conservative. They're horribly traditional. Or you take somebody who says, we are pro-women's rights. We are for the poor. We are for hospitality. We conscientiously think about the role of government. 
Oh, and people will say, oh, no, no, that's the progressives. <laughs> There's a dynamic tension here. Do you see it? That Peter calls the church to be. You are living stones. We do not fit, friends. We never have. We do not fit. We are resident aliens. The word resident aliens means that you are not a tourist. It, it, to use modern immigration language, it would be as though they had green cards. They are here. They love the city. They are productive for the city. They are working for the city, but their citizenship is not here. So also you have a green card. You are not part of this world, but you love her, and you want to strengthen her, and you want to give your life for her. That is what it means to be God's church in the world. That is the dynamic tension. Notice, they were committed to their new country, and this balance comes out particularly in verse 12. You're not called to assimilate or to separate. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, you will be misunderstood. They may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. This is an incredible vision. It's an incredible dynamic tension that Peter gives to the church. You're to be so interconnected that when you are not here, people fall. When you shake, they shake. When they shake, you shake. When they're not here, you fall. We're interconnected. We're living stones being built up together. And there's a dynamic tension that you must maintain in Tulsa and Rogers County. You must maintain that. So how do you maintain that tension? What's the power to maintain that tension when everything in you and in me wants to settle it and to fall into a camp? Verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone. You have to do three things. You have to admit that you already have a cornerstone. You have to come to him as your cornerstone. And you have to line up with him. You have to admit that you already have a cornerstone. Verse 7, it says, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everybody's building. Everybody has a cornerstone. What's yours? When Jonathan Edwards was writing Religious Affections in the 1800s, this great book that asks the question, what are the true signs of religious, he uses religious in a positive, not a pejorative sense. What are the true signs of gospel affections, of true religious affections? And what he says, it's not memorizing scripture, Satan can do that. It's not going to church, Satan even can do that. It is not, um, uh, you know, memorizing uh, uh, portions of scripture or fellowship. The only way that you know you're a true believer is do you persevere through suffering? And that's the one thing that the mainstream and the sectarian groups tend to avoid. They separate to avoid suffering, or they just say, no, we're fine. You don't know what your cornerstone is until your cornerstone begins to shake. And everything above you begins to shake. There was a friend of mine who um, was counseling a woman, and... Um, she was in relationships that were not good for her, and um, she, she uh, 
she saw that she needed to get help. And so she got out of this relationship and she began to go to counseling. And essentially this counselor um, who wasn't a Christian told her, listen, like, you need some self-confidence. What you really need is you, you need to get away from this guy, but you need, to, you need to get a career to get some stability. And before my friend, she realized that what this counselor was actually telling her to do is, listen, don't make men your cornerstone. Make your career your cornerstone. And she came to my friend because she was like, that's not helping me. And of course it's not because she hasn't come to him. He's precious. Do you see him that way? Early years ago, early after I became a Christian, I dove headlong into the church. Went to church every week, more than once. And I sought refuge in the church because I wanted to get comfort from the pain I was experiencing in my family's life. And I used the church, even the church, I used her as a way to be a kind of anesthesia for me, for the real pain in my heart. In other words, the church can become a cornerstone because it became that for me. What's your cornerstone? And you cannot be able to say, Jesus Christ is my cornerstone until you can admit that you have one. And you see him as precious. Please hear me. He is rejected, but he doesn't assimilate and he doesn't give in. He doesn't withdraw. No man takes my life, Jesus says, but I lay it down on my own accord. He is accused and he's misunderstood, but he never gets self-defensive or opens his mouth. And do you know why he did that? Because he sees you as precious to him. You are precious to him. And so therefore Jesus doesn't assimilate and he doesn't separate himself from you. He keeps that tension. And that tension is never resolved in his ministry until the cross. And he goes to that cross because he sees you as precious. You, not the person next you. And he loves you. And until you can admit you have a cornerstone, and until you see him as precious, you will just trade one cornerstone for the next. But as the text says, the stone that causes men to stumble, a rock and makes them fall, you're stumbling over your cornerstones week after week after week. Is he precious? Cornerstones have angles. They were the first stone laid when you built a new building. You had to line up everything with the angle of the cornerstone. If the cornerstone is strong, then you're strong. If the cornerstone is weak, then you're weak. The moment that unites us to Jesus, the moment that we are united to Jesus, we are made completely accepted in his sight. And the God who made the universe, who numbered the stars and flung them into space, who knows the names of every star, indeed who named them, knows you. And he knows every burden on your heart right now. And he loves you. 
And when you have this kind of radical acceptance in the eyes of God, it doesn't make you fearful of other people. It helps you to fight the temptation in your heart to be either separatistic or to be mainstream. Neither to separate from the world or to completely assimilate in it. You open your arms to the world and say, please come. You're hospitable. You welcome them. But at the same time, you're holy and you're set apart because you know that God's word calls us to be an alien people. Do you have that kind of radical hospitality? Do we have that kind of radical hospitality? Will we be misunderstood? Of course. That's just part of it. And you have to be okay with that because you're going to be tempted. We're going to be tempted as a church to become separatistic or to become mainstream, and we've got to maintain the tension. Come to him as your cornerstone. And when you do, you see the church as this dynamic, interconnected set of relationships of which you are a crucial part of it. Every child in this room, hear me, this is not about mom and dad. This is about you too. You are a crucial part of this church. Because there are certain aspects of Jesus we see because you're here. And church, we have to fight the tension of neither separating nor becoming mainstream and assimilating but of being something totally different, being the people of God. And the only way we can be that is if we, if we see Jesus as our cornerstone and be more affirming, more giving, far more beneficial to society at large than Owasso, than Tulsa, than Claremore, than Bartlesville could have ever imagined. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By your wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have turned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to be such an interconnected set of living stones that the world looks at us and though they accuse us, they see our good deeds and they glorify our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.